0: Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started, so uh, welcome this morning. Happy July 16th, or 17th, whatever it is. Glad that you're here today. It's good to see Ellie Stone back from Greece, and hopefully we'll hear a little bit about uh, Greece sometime soon, Uh, some exciting work there, and... uh, yeah, so make sure we put that on the schedule, okay, El? No? Well, we'll figure it out. You tell me and then I'll tell everybody else, okay? <laughs> All right, well, listen to this verse. <clears throat> it's interesting that the context of, this, of this, this, the last verse I want to get to, but just consider the context. It starts off this way. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Why? Because the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nat with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain on the land for 3 years and 6 months and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. I think it's interesting because in the context of talking about Elijah and calling for prayer, he's thinking, James here is thinking about, It starts off with, confess your sins, your trespasses to one another. So this summer we've been working on this little series, uh, Faithful Even Through Failure. We're looking at the lives of men and women throughout church history, biblical history, that, you know, we, we might not... We, we see certain faults, we see certain failures in these people, and, and to be honest, if we look at anybody's life, if we, I mean, imagine that your life would be examined by hundreds of years of church history. It's going to find, it's going to show some, some wear and tear, isn't it? It's going to show some, some difficulty, it's going to show some weakness, it's going to show some faults, and it's going to show some failures. And the tendency sometimes, when we come to especially biblical characters, is to think that maybe these guys, these ladies, were above the fray, you know, and and they're just, you know, the example of godliness and righteousness uh, par excellence. They they are above the fray, but that's not the case. We see men and women who are seriously flawed, who have dealt with failure but who have remained faithful in the midst of it. And so today, I'd like us to consider the life of a prophet who had a nature like ours, who was human like we are human, and his name is Elijah, the prophet. I had hoped to, to do this all in one sitting, and we'll see what happens uh, you'll remember, those of you who were here maybe 20 or 25 years, you know, the, the three of you or the two of you, mom and dad, who are here uh, 25 years ago and stayed through all that time, uh, probably remember we went through a little study on the prophet Elijah, which was just good for my soul and I hope good for you. And I want to take some of what we learned then and just replay it for you today uh, we'll see if we do an entire look at the life of Elijah or we just do a little bit of a, of a look at, at the life of Elijah. We'll see how today goes. Elijah is mentioned throughout the Bible. He has There are lots of New Testament references in the gospel. Jesus taught uh, um, at least on one occasion on the life of Elijah in, in the synagogue of Nazareth. Uh, we see Elijah's name mentioned throughout the four gospels. Paul mentions him in Romans chapter 11. James mentions him, as we just read, in James chapter 5. But particularly, if we're going to know anything about the life of Elijah, we would go to the Old Testament. Most specifically, we'd go to the book of 1 Kings. He is mentioned throughout the book of 1 Kings from chapter 17 all the way to chapter 21. We see something about him in 2 Kings. We see something about him in 2 Chronicles. We even read about Elijah uh, or, an Elijah like character, anyway, in the book of Malachi. It'll be interesting then to, to find out that when we do this little study on the life of Elijah, that at least today, we're not going to talk a whole lot about Elijah. Let me tell you a, a few things about him. If you would, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. And my hope is that at least this first half of the sentence of chapter 17, verse 1, that I'll be able to explain it to you, and you'll have a little bit of a knowledge of this man, the prophet Elijah. <clears> 1 <throat> Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. Here's what we know about Elijah. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab so let's stop there and consider what there is for us to know about Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead what he said to Ahab Elijah is called here a Tishbite that is he lived in a town called Tishbe now that's just to the east of the Jordan River just south of the sea of Galilee this town, though its exact location is somewhat uncertain today, was in the region we know from Gilead, the region of Gilead. And this area is known as a particularly wild and rugged territory. There are, there are dense forests there, uh, abundant streams, abundant wildlife. The area probably would have been an agricultural region with uh, frequent rainfall, There were fruitful fields throughout this area of of Gilead. Now, it's important that we understand something of the geographical background uh, that is given here if we're really to understand the life of Elijah, the Tishbite, from Tishbe in Gilead. I just like saying that, the Tishbite from Tishbe. It helps us understand what I think would really point to the ruggedness of this man, Elijah. Look with me at Second Kings for a moment. Second Kings, verse uh, chapter one and verse eight. You just know, note something here about the ruggedness of this, of this man. He, he's a mountain man, right? He's an, he's an outdoors. He's a man's man. They, they answered him verse eight. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. This is a, a rugged man. Wears a, a, some rough garments. One, one commentator said this of, of the area of this, of this region. He said, the people of those hills reflected the nature of their environment. They were rough and rugged, solemn and stern, dwelling in rude villages and subsisting by keeping flocks of sheep, hardened by an open-air life, dressed in a cloak of camel's hair, uh, accustomed to spending most of the time in solitude, pressed and possessed of sinewy strength, which would have exalted... I'm sorry, I can't read my own writing, which would have made him to endure great physical strain. Elijah would present a marked contrast with the tw- town dwellers in the lowland valleys and more especially would be distinguished from the pampered courtiers of the palace. We're told in James chapter 5 verse 17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He, he was someone with whom we could identify. He He had similar passions, similar desires. He was natured like we are. There there wasn't something special about this man. He was a man like anyone else. And and as you'll see, as we go on, depending on if, if, if we expand this or not, as you see throughout his life, you'll see that there are the same things that we find struggle, we find difficulties with. Those are the same things that Elijah dealt with. The same things we struggle with are the same things that Elijah would have struggled with. I like what Gene Getz said. He said he experienced intense fear and deep loneliness. At times he doubted God's faithfulness. He allowed his anger to distort his thinking. He experienced such dark depressions that he wanted to die. This, this is the life of Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. But all of the sudden, we're introduced to him here as if out of nowhere. First Kings 17.1, we don't know anything about Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. And then all of the sudden, chapter 17, verse 1, he bursts on the scene. His presence is, is unexpected. His presence is even unforetold. We, we can't really expect his presence because of the, the historical setting the political setting, even the spiritual context of the day. We're told nothing of this man, nothing about him, except Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead. Other than that, he's from this rugged country. He's a, he's a mountain man. He's a rugged man. Now, I want you to understand something about this man and if you're going to understand something about the man, you've got to understand something about the times. We read here, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab. Ahab. Now, if you've been around church at all, you, you know Ahab. You are at least somewhat familiar with him. You, you've heard the name before. If you've read Herbert Melville, you've read Moby Dick, you know something of Ahab, but that's not that this Ahab. This is a, a different Ahab. The context is set for us really toward the end of chapter 16. In fact, let me just read it for you and and explain this. Chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, where, which is, he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And that's when we get into, the writer says, now Elijah. Elijah bursts on the scene in, in in this day, in this era. The author explains that Asa was ruling in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you know, was uh, in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it was in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. that We read about here. Asa was a king who served the Lord. He was a sponsor of a great many reforms in the land of Judah, in the southern kingdom. If you want to read about those reforms, go back to 1 Kings chapter 15, uh, right around the middle, around verse 9 or so. But at the, te- the testimony at the end of Asa's life was that in the midst of his disease, remember he had a disease, in the midst of his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but he sought the physicians. We read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. You see, Asa had been at war with Baasha of the northern kingdom. After the death of Baasha, who reigned for about, 24 years, First uh, Kings chapter 15, the northern kingdom experienced this, the rule of three consecutive kings. The first was a man named Elah. He reigned for two years. Then a man named Zimri, who reigned for seven days. After the reign of Zimri, there was a division in the northern kingdom. Half of the people were followers of a man named Tibni, and half followed a man named Omri. Omri was the commander of the army of Israel. Now, just to summarize everything, eventually Omri became the reigning king. Tibni died. Omri became the reigning king. And he reigned for 12 years. You say, well, Joe, we're... Let me just remind you, we're talking about Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. I know that, but I'm going to give you the the context of his life. In order to do that, you need to know something about Omri. His reign is important for at least two reasons. First, after a time of political instability, Omri apparently restored stability to the kingdom i mean you could you can get a note just you know you, if you have a king who reigns seven days there's obviously some instability in the land and so omri apparently restored at least some stability to the northern kingdom in fact he actually built samaria samaria is very familiar to us if we've been around the, the scriptures at all samaria became the new capital of the northern kingdom listen to what one commentator said Said, probably Omri's most impressive achievement is his construction of a new capital city, Samaria. This city was placed on a strategic and centrally located site overlooking the chief commercial routes of the Israeli plain. It was therefore easily defended and quite accessible to merchants and traders. Samaria remained Israel's capital, the northern kingdom's capital, until Assyria plundered the city in 722. B.C. Omri essentially began a dynasty in the northern kingdom that lasted 50 years. Omri, Ahab, Ahaziah, uh, Ahaziah, and Jehoram. Now, there are some extra-biblical documents that refer to Israel, the northern kingdom, not just as the northern kingdom, but actually refer to Israel as the land of Omri. So he's he's tied in with this this region. But the author of 1 Kings doesn't speak of those things. Doesn't speak of the history of Omri. Doesn't speak necessarily of the reign of Omri. The author of 1 Kings, as we read here in chapter 16, speaks of Omri's spiritual failure. Look again at verse 25, or back at 25 of 16. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then this qualifier, and did more evil than all who were before him. Omri actually led Israel in idol worship and led God to anger against Israel. We see how involved God is really in the affairs of man because here's what's happening uh, he views Omri's life as a, as a cause, a leading cause of evil in the land and as a reason for God's anger to be aroused against the land. Now at the death of Omri, he had a son. And his son was named Ahab. This Ahab that we're talking about here in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Ahab began to reign. Now, Omri was evil. We just read that. But Ahab was more evil. Ahab was progressive in his wickedness. He kept growing in evil. It, it, there, there wasn't enough. It, there wasn't enough evil to satisfy him. He had to keep Growing and expanding in this evil such that, verse 31 of chapter 16, as if it were a trivial thing to, for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Now, to Ahab, the sin of Jeroboam was just small. It was just peanuts. It was, it, was, it was a small deal. That's the testimony of God. Jeroboam, you might remember, was the one who made images of calves from gold and called them gods. And and led Israel to, to, to idol worship. He he really set about leading Israel in idol worship. The idol worship of Jeroboam was was that was combined with syncretism or, or was syncretism. That is the combining of two practices from uh, uh the combining of practices from two or more religions. So Jeroboam wasn't, he didn't say that, that Yahweh wasn't God, at least verbally. He didn't verbally deny the existence of of Israel's God, Yahweh, but Jeroboam led Israel to worship a God of his own making. Not only that, but Jeroboam ordained different religious feasts. 1 Kings chapter 12 talks about these different religious feasts that Jeroboam ordained in the land. And he appointed, in fact, his own priests, even though they were not Aaron's descendants. Jeroboam was not uh, you know a lightweight when it came to sin. He he wasn't a lightweight when it came to idolatry. But to Ahab those were that that was just the JV team. That was the B team. Ahab took sin and idolatry to a varsity level in in Israel. Ahab made Jeroboam look like a lightweight when it came to wickedness. He was a rather successful king, politically speaking. I mean, from a military standpoint, um, there were significant victories that Ahab led in Israel. As, 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 As Ahab comes onto the scene, there was a relative, there was a time of relative national peace and it does seem that there was some economic prosperity during the reign of Ahab. Not every king, not every wicked king sees an attendant, you know, economic disaster in the land. However, the focus of the biblical testimony is not on Ahab's military prowess not on his political power, not even on his economic genius or political stability, but the focus of the Bible is on Ahab's spiritual idolatry. It was a time that was characterized uh, by theological compromise, to say the least. Despite all of the other accomplishments of Ahab's life, we could probably summarize his life with three statements. One, he took as a wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal; Two, he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Three, he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's what we read. So, as we consider the life of Elijah, the the Tishbite from Tishbe, let's consider these three things about Ahab. Consider his his marriage. As king in Israel, one of the responsibilities of the king, at least one of the self-assumed responsibilities of the king, was to improve the relationship of Israel with foreign lands. There was both a military and an economic benefit to this, and uh, for instance, you have Syria to the north was an ever-present threat to Israel. Israel had even joined forces with Judah to fight against Syria. However, in order to shore up a strong international relations with with these other areas, Ahab made advances on his northern neighbor, Tyre, T-Y-R-E. And there was an alliance between the two nations that was formed. Again, to quote one commentator, this this alliance that was formed, he said, was mutually advantageous. Tyre was at the height of her colonial expansion, being partly dependent on imports of foodstuffs. She offered to Israel both an outlet for agricultural products and numerous commercial opportunities. Tyre, for her part, desired both a counterbalance to the power of Damascus and the reactivation of trade with Israel and via Israel with the land uh, to the south. So there's this alliance between the nations uh, of Israel and Tyre that was actually ratified, as it was often in those days, by a marriage. The marriage involved the newly crowned king of Israel, Ahab, And the princess of Tyre. Now, admittedly, her name and the description as a princess doesn't seem to go together. You hear the word princess and you don't immediately think of the word Jezebel. I can confidently say none of you will ever name your daughter Jezebel. The daughter of King Ethbaal. Now, tragically, this marriage and its inevitable consequences have proven to be a, a terrible blight on Israel's history ever since. Jezebel. I mean, the name itself just sends shivers uh, uh, shiv- not shivers shivers down your spine. It might send shivers too. I don't know. Jezebel and her father Ethbaal were loyal worshippers of the Canaanite f- fertility god. Baal typically worship of Baal well the, the name itself just means lord or or master it was a that that worship was typically localized in other words the local there, there were all kinds of local Baals local lords, local masters of a region or an area, and they were regarded as the owner of that particular area the the, the master the lord over that particular locality. So we read of Baal Peor in Numbers 25. You read of Baal Zebub in Second Kings chapter 1. In any area, the Baal, the Lord, was viewed as the fertility god of that area. The one who was responsible for produce, for fertility in that land, in both man and beast. In of course, it was the utmost importance for the nomadic peoples to secure favor with those lords, those masters, because if they didn't, they wouldn't have a harvest, and if they didn't have a harvest, they wouldn't have a life. They wouldn't be able to, they, they, they were absolutely dependent on nourishing rains, they were dependent on uh, on on these gods for family prosperity. Baal worship then evolved into basically forms of ritual prostitution. You can read about that in Judges chapter 2 and in Jeremiah chapter 17. And even, amazingly, Jeremiah 19.5, child sacrifice. Baal was part of the Canaanite pantheon and was said to be the one who was controlling both rain and fertility. Ethbaal then, Jezebel's father, was actually a priest of this local lord. And Jezebel was influenced greatly by this cultic worship. Now, this was no secret to Ahab, who he's getting into league with here, yet he still agreed to the marriage. In fact, Ahab went so far as to set up an altar for Baal in the temple in a temple that he had built for Baal worship in Samaria he himself first kings chapter 16 verse 31 went and served Baal which no doubt involved all kinds of sexual escapades there doesn't seem to be much of a hint of opposition to such pagan worship in Israel at the time. If, if, if it feels good, do it. Seems to have been the, the moniker of the day. Whatever will get us prosperity, whatever will guarantee our peace, whatever will give us stability, that's what we need. And Jezebel figuratively became the patron saint of Baal worship in Israel. (laughs) These were incredibly dark times, spiritually dark times in Israel. Jeroboam led Israel in syncretism. But Ahab plunged Israel headlong into the worship of another god. It seems to have been the the wicked couple's delight to drive Yahweh worship from the land. They they were the ones, you remember 1 Kings 19, in in that well-known passage, they were the ones who had become state sponsors, who had led Israel to become a state sponsor of Baal worship. They even even had priests of Baal, priests of Asherah. Hmm. There were at least... 7,000 true worshipers of the one true God. 7,000 in the land. That—that's In one case, it's meant to encourage Elijah that he's not the only one. In another case, there were 7,000. Among the people of God in the land which God had given to them, there was 7,000. But all in the name of political stability, all in the name of I can imagine this was the precursor to political correctness, right? All in the name of economic prosperity, the Bible says, 1 Kings chapter 21, there was none like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And then these words, and he behaved very abominably. That word is a very vivid word. Abominable. We're we're not talking about the abominable snowman of of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer who became sort of a playful, bumbling, bouncing whatever. Bumbles, bounce, remember. This, This is that which is despised Utterly hated. He behaved very abominably. Ahab provoked God to anger. It's an amazing statement, especially when you consider how God reveals Himself to us in Exodus 34. What does He say in Exodus 34? The Lord... The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's God's character. And Ahab stirred that gracious, faithful, long-suffering God to anger. That's a hard thing to do. It is a difficult thing to do, to stir up God that long-suffering, patient God, to, to anger. He's not easily provoked. Yet Ahab did more than anyone else to provoke him to anger. The anger of, of God was kindled because of Ahab. He worshipped Baal, and the Bible says he made a wooden image. Now that's possibly, that, that he made a wo- wooden image is possibly a reference to Asherah. This may have referred to a plant that was worshipped or, or maybe it was his own carved image. In other words, the Baal worship of Ahab was not limited in sincerity or scope. He had his very own instruments of worship. He was all in. He, he hook, line, and sinker. He dove in head first. He wasn't testing the waters. He was all in. That's something about his marriage. With that, you can imagine what the moral convictions of this man were like. First Kings 16 closes out with a seemingly insignificant and, and obscure account. I, I, out of nowhere. We got this information about Hiel. In the days of Ha'el, of Bethel, he built Jericho. In his days, Ha'el of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. Hmm. When Yahweh was effectively expelled from the nation, so were all of his moral bearings. You know, there's a lesson here for us. We won't take time to talk about it today, but but whenever you expel God, whenever you expel the one true God, you expel all moral bearings. You are on a a, a, a slippery slope of moral decline that will never end. In Joshua 6:26, we read the account of the prophecy of Joshua concerning the destruction of Jericho. In that prophetic passage. Joshua pronounced a curse upon anyone who would seek to rebuild the city that God had destroyed. Yet in the midst of such great theological compromise, we find that God's prophetic word was so despised. We know very little about this man named Hiel, except that he took the word of God through the prophecy of Joshua, and he mocked it. He despised God's word. He decided that no matter what Joshua said, that no matter what God had spoken through Joshua, that he would rebuild the city of Jericho. And the final word on this subject is that his, in his pride and in his arrogance, it demanded the lives of two of his sons, both his youngest and his oldest. His despising of the word of God led to um, a great tragedy amongst his family. You can see the something of the history, something of the geography, something of the political nature, the economy of the day, but you see something about the morality. Of the day, it, it's in this time that Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe, bursts onto the scene. It's in the midst of these times that we're introduced to this prophet. If if you know your Bible, it's not just a prophet; it's the prophet, right? We're told very little about this man. We don't know anything about his mother or father. Little, if anything, about his hometown. But what we do know about this man is that he was an ordinary man who was used in extraordinary ways. His name, Elijah. Elijah. It means the Lord, He is God. And and His Ministry is really communicated even in his name. His ministry would be a ministry that would stand up for and and assure all of the people that the Lord, he is God. Elijah's parents must have been godly people to name their son, Elijah. Name your child like that when, when the pagan influence was growing was quite an amazing an amazing thing. This man, Elijah, bursts on the scene. He comes out of, his, out, out of the mountains. He comes out of the rugged territory of, of Tishbe, out of the rugged territory of Gilead. A rough man, clothed with camel's hair, not unlike John the Baptist who would come to him with a similar message. To the king at that time, and he walks down out of the mountains, and you can just imagine him, a rough and rugged man walking, and and he goes to the palace, from a cabin to a palace. He goes to the palace in Samaria, which would have been a very unfamiliar place for him. Have you ever been like that? I mean, most of us, we're just normal people, right? We're just kind of we're just kind of like that, and, and you go to some places, and you, you feel, you know, you go to these, maybe you go to a fancy restaurant, and you're just like me, you're just like, your elbows are on the table. I, I remember when I went to my senior prom in high school, man, the ranch dressing was so good, I drank it out of the, you know, out of the, the serving dish, and somebody said, you don't do that, this, this isn't that, but I said, it's good. I imagine Elijah's kind of like that, you know, just like, ah, it doesn't care, you know, he drinks the, Ranch dressing and wipes it off his face, you know. That's just a little imagination for you. He's really out of place there in Samaria. He, Peter would probably say, Elijah, you're like a sojourner. You're like an exile. You're a pilgrim. You're, you're going to some place you don't belong. Pilgrims, outcasts on the earth, Peter calls us. Out of place in the present world, trying to figure out where we fit in. That's Elijah. But here he goes, out of place in this present world, and he goes to deliver God's message to the king right in his own home. Doesn't send a text, doesn't send a messenger, a smoke signal. He goes right to the palace, to Ahab to deliver God's message. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of the word. He he took the message of the king of kings to the king of Judah. What made Elijah, I wonder, so bold as to do that? What, What would make him so bold and brazen so as to confront this evil man in his own home. I think we know what it is. Look at, Eli- uh, at 1 Kings 17, 1, again. He said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. That's what gave him the boldness. That's what steeled his spine to make the the walk from his, his area there in Gilead to go into the palace of Samaria. All others may have denied either the existence of or the power of the creator God, but Elijah remained firmly convinced that the Lord himself was alive, is alive. And he was confronting the very lifeless gods of Ahab. He was confronting the lifeless gods of Jezebel with the living God of Israel. The one who worked mightily in Israel to bring them out of Egypt. He who parted the Red Sea and gave manna in the wilderness. The Lord God of David who proclaimed him to be the owner and possessor of all things. The shepherd of our souls and the Savior. Perhaps Elijah by this time was now familiar with the words of Job who said, I know that my Redeemer lives. The dead and lifeless idols of Ahab held no power in the presence of the almighty ruler of the universe. He, he was a representative of the living God going to confront the representatives of the lifeless gods. He was standing in the presence of the ruler of the universe. And this this single truth motivated Elijah, the, the man in his ministry. There was, there was nothing for him to fear. It not only motivated the man in his ministry, it motivated the, the message. We, we read in the book of Psalms 135, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. He says, before whom I stand. Not only was Elijah convinced that the Lord God was the living God as opposed to the the dead, lifeless Baal, but he realized that he was ministering before the face of God. I love it when Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you therefore in the presence of God, preach the word. He realized that he was ministering before the face of God. God separated the tribe of Levi in Deuteronomy chapter 10. In Deuteronomy 10 verse 8, he said, I'm separating them to stand before the Lord to minister to him. Elijah stood in the presence of God. It is a fearful thing to fall under the hands of a living God. It is a fearful thing to stand in the presence of God. It's more fearful to stand in the presence of God than it is to stand in the presence of any or all kings combined. All ministry is ministry to God. You and I live in the midst of of moral decline, moral degradation. We we live in the age of, of the multiplication of of many local deities. Yet we stand in the presence of the living God, and so every testimony and every, the the life that you live, a life of holiness and righteousness, is a life lived in the presence of God, before the face of God. All men may despise you, and everyone may mock you and ridicule you, but you stand in the presence of God. Now, let me quickly remind you, and, and, and I know we're not going to get finished today, but I'll, I'll just try to maybe wrap it all up. I mean, this is, some, this is some pretty motivating stuff here, isn't it? This is great. Praise the Lord. Yet this is the same man who, having experienced incredible um, deliverance, who still ran scared from Jezebel. The same one. He's a man like we are. What do you mean? Well, he's a man. Man at his best is at best a man. It's all we are. And there's lots that go into that. I mean, you think of everything that that Elijah had been through. All of the strain and all of the stress of life to the point that he was out. He had to be fed by ravens. Just when he thought he was in a place of safety, the brook dried up. I mean, all the stress and the strain of those things and the reality of standing. You, you can imagine what had to happen as he, as he girded himself up to stand in the presence of those prophets of Baal and on Mount Carmel. And to see God work in such a way. And then... He's just a physical man. He's just a man. And you can imagine all of that stress and strain that would wear on him and just, just, what do we say, just petered him out. He was just done. It's interesting that most, most spiritual leaders who, who fall, who experience moral failure it's a time that goes on in their life it's it it's not something that that happens all at once it happens after years sometimes of faithfulness and that's what happened to Elijah the message however that Elijah delivered was a powerful one it's really powerful as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. <laughs> walks down out of his cabin, as I'm just kind of imagining in my mind. He walks out of the mountains, goes to the palace, points a bony finger at the chest of Elijah uh, of Ahab, and says, as the Lord God lives before whom I stand, It's going to be neither dew nor rain except at my command. Turns around and walks right back out. The message that he delivered was powerful. The rain, the spring and the fall rains were absolutely vital to all of the crops grown in Israel. Baal was said to be the god of fertility. The god of of rain certainly he could not fail. Yet James tells us that it did not rain in Israel for three and a half years. We we know little of the horror of such a drought. I, I have friends in northern Uganda who I think for two months hadn't received any rain at the time when they were getting ready to plant. Just two months without rain. Can you imagine? And just The sun baking the dirt and how hard... I mean, we went for how many weeks here in in May or whatever it was, June? I mean, four weeks? And, I mean, you saw what happened to the ground? Imagine three and a half years. (laughs) Yet week after week, there was no rain. In the fall, no rain. In the spring, no rain. Three and a half years. God tells Elijah to get out. Depart from here. Verse verse 2, he says, And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here. Turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook, brook Cherith, that is, east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. But after a little while, The brook dried up. Why? Because there was no rain in the land. God commands that there is no rain. And when there is no rain, I mean, he was certainly able to provide for him by the brook. But then the brook dried up and God moves him on to the widow of Zarephath and provides for him through the widow of Zarephath. What's the point? God... God is working in the midst of of Elijah's life. God is working in the midst of Israel, even when there is such moral degradation, even when there is such such difficulty spiritually in the land. Um, and, and what we see in Elijah, we just see him. God said this, go and he goes. And God said this, go and he goes. And and that's what he does. He goes and he waits and he has the amazing provision of the Lord where it doesn't seem to be any provision. I remember reading about in the days of um, um, when when Dallas Theological Seminary was in its, in its heyday and uh, there was a serious financial crisis. There was a, a large amount needed for the ministry to continue on. And um, I guess it was... The leaders, maybe Schaefer and Ironside were together, and uh, apparently Ironside prayed that day. He said this, Oh, Lord God, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Won't you sell some of those cattle and send us the money? Um, later that day or whatever it was, a week or two later, a cattle rancher actually showed up in the office and asked for Lewis Barry Schaefer and said, are you Dr. Schaefer? Yes, I am. He responded, sir, I'm a cattle rancher, and I don't know what came over me, but God told me to sell some of my cattle and give you the money. And the exact amount was needed to keep the, the ministry running. God, God, has God, The God who ordains the drought also ordains the very provision for his servants in the middle of the drought. And that's what Elijah experiences. That's what Elijah experiences throughout this. Let me just show you something here. Verse 7 of chapter 17. And after a while, after a while, maybe, uh, probably signifies about a year that takes place. He's just stayed where God told him to stay. And after a while, he stayed there. After a while, the brook dried up. This is, this, is, um, this is divine decree. This isn't something that just happens by accident. God is in control here. God is at work here. Let me just try to move ahead. You see God moving and providing for his, his prophet. But you know what, I don't want to, I don't want to, we'll continue this because I, wa- I want to get to chapter 19 and I don't want to just gloss it over. But now you have a little bit of a picture of Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. You know, a little bit of this, of this prophet. Um, next time, whenever the next time I'm sp- scheduled to teach, uh, we'll look at chapter 19, this amazing thing that goes on, on top of Mount Carmel and how God is in the midst working And moving and teaching his, Elijah seems to get a little carried away with some things here, and uh, God's just reining him in, reeling him in, and teaching him that he's going to be the one that provides for him, and some wonderful things for us to learn there. Well, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, just a time to look into the life of Elijah And as we think about his life, as we think about his ministry, we think about his message, I pray that you'll encourage us, O God, and to to be faithful, even though we face our own, the the reality of our own faults, the reality of our own failures. Let us be faithful to you these days until the day you call us home. We pray this in Christ's name.